Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. If you're a loyal listener and you'd like to support independent creators, please support Studs over at patreon.com studs. I link to it in the show notes. Look, I'm going to keep Studs free for you, and I'm not going to pressure you to drop your hard-earned bucks on my project. But if you dig Studs and you want to do your part to keep it going, well, I offer some pretty, pretty cool rewards to Studs patrons. You should check it out. Again, patreon.com slash studs. You know, it's been pretty cool. This is the second week in a row that a former student of mine has signed up to patronize my project. I would have thought that the last thing my students would want to do after suffering through classes with me would be to hear my voice. But gluttons for punishment they are. They tune in to put up with me yet more. And I, for my part, am grateful to them. So thanks, Kelly. You were a total rock star then. I'm sure you're a total rock star now. I can only hope and trust that you're doing everything in your power to stay healthy and to stay well during these impossibly funky times. If memory serves, and I think in this case it does, chances are, despite the circumstances, to spite the circumstances, heck, maybe because of the circumstances, you're probably doing swimmingly. You're good like that. You were. You must still be. How could you not be? Cat's pajamas, I tell you. Anyway, thanks for supporting the podcast. means a lot to me. And my dear listener, if this is not the right time for you to donate to studs, I get it, we're good, but it would mean the world to me if you could just tell a pal or two about this podcast. Just shoot them the link to your favorite episode. You could do it now, or you could listen to this one. This might end up being your favorite episode. For in this episode, the Reverend Billy Simmons and his partner in life and in work, Amanda Simmons, share the story and the mission of their punky, funky, and downright rock and roll salon on Chicago's north side. Now, I've never had the pleasure to meet these two before, but they are heartily endorsed by Dan Wolf, the guitar tech on season one of Studs. Like me, Dan is a goofy, sometimes obsessive, but always bald Jew. And I hadn't the slightest idea why one bald Jew would tell another bald Jew to go talk to the hairstylist. But then I checked out the webpage of Reverend Billy's Chop Shop, and I was blown away. Yo, maybe before you listen, you should check out the insane styles they do. I'll link to their page in the show notes. It's other-level stuff. Artistry, for sure. And when I talked to them, I got a better sense of why Danny Wolf recommended them. 
They talk about how and why they create an empowering space that allows their clients, their friends, to exude confidence. They build trust through vulnerability and through honesty. Proper punk virtues through and through. So join me in the barbershop with this dynamic duo, Reverend Billy and Amanda Simmons. The good Reverend Billy Simmons, Amanda Simmons, you are the co-owners of Reverend Billy's Chop Shop. How do y'all describe what you do? Uh, <laughs> hair burners, hairdressers, cosmetologists, a lot of different names for it. We make people look pretty. Is that the goal? Making people look pretty? That's absolutely the goal. To make people feel better when they leave than they did when they came in. Amanda Simmons, how do you describe what you do? I'm the business side of everything. I do social media. I do the inventory. I do, you know, management, everything but cutting hair, basically. I also work the front desks. I work one-on-one with clients, too, when it comes to, like, checking out products. Mostly all the business side. Okay. So Amanda and the Good Reverend, you all are posted up on the west side of Chicago. You are currently, I'm looking at you right now, you're in the same home. You live together. You work together. How did you all get on this path? Maybe the Good Reverend, we'll start with you. How did you become a stylist? I started playing music and It worked out, but didn't work out with larger labels like RCA and Universal. And there were a whole bunch of reasons that I needed to get out of it. So I went back home to my parents' house and my sister suggested that I think about cutting hair because it had a lot of similarities to entertainment, which I absolutely did not see. But I didn't have anything better to do. I didn't want to go back to university. So I went to cosmetology school and absolutely did not enjoy it for the first probably five or 10 years. I just didn't. It was a shitty fucking job that I absolutely did not want to do. I met a lot of people. It was really fun, but I had also gotten back into music on them kind of slightly healthier level than I was on before. Also, again, larger labels with other bands. I played guitar. Um, And then I went through a series of other things that creative people go through that are not really that positive, I guess. (laughs) Um, Moved to Chicago, got into another band, didn't work for a while, just played music and then started to work at Big Hair then started to work at another salon. Years go by, I'm doing the hair thing. I'm starting to love it and working kind of close to Boys Town, Clark and Belmont at another salon there right across from the Pumpkin Donut. Right, right. And then I had friends that worked at another place in the area called The Alley, which is kind of a glorified hot topic. I had friends that were working at the tattoo shop there because I have a couple, two, three couple, of seems them. like. Yeah, And um, so met this person that was piercing there. She was Amanda and we met and I kept going into the alley to talk to some friends who were tattooing there. 
and to see Amanda because I thought she was pretty awesome. And uh, then some other friends of ours kind of wound up getting us together. And then we met. I got her fired from her other job. Well done. It was Whole Foods. <laughs> it sucked anyways. <laughs> so got her fired. Um, we shacked up together. And then we started our first product line called Hair Crap, which was a pomade. Um, I asked Amanda if she would marry me. So we did that in 2012. And then a bunch of other upheavals and wound up going into another business at Big Hair because my friend Patty, the owner of Big Hair, passed on and some friends asked us to take that over. So we, we did successfully. We took it from a one-star rating on all of the social media platforms to a four and a half star rating. Wow. The other owner of that salon was challenging to deal with. We were met with an ultimatum that we had the ability to say, okay, nope, we're out and we're going to do our own thing because we can. And we didn't like to be threatened. So we started our own thing and kind of said that to them. For the listener, uh, the good reverend is holding up his middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> so now, nearly seven years later, we're, it will be our seven-year anniversary. Is that right, Amanda? We just had our sixth at Red Billy's Chop Shop. So that's where we're at now, I guess. Cool. I have one, maybe two short follow-ups. And Amanda, I want to hear about your path. Rev, I want to know what it felt like when your sister suggested that you go to cosmetology school to become a stylist. Kind of like an insult and like a sellout because that isn't what I'd been doing since I was nine. I started playing clarinet and then moved into guitar and went to university for guitar performance, jazz. I didn't want to be a fucking hairdresser. How does it feel now that she seems to have been so right? You fucking sellout. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's good. And I like the sellout thing too. I think that's funny because sellout means you're fucking making money. So, <laughs> hey, good. Right, but... But in all seriousness, she. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to give your sister the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say that she cares about you. She wants good things yeah. for you. She was trying to help, and she saw something in you, like this dude's got an eye for style. He's got a sensibility for aesthetics. She saw that in you. You were a bit insulted. I want to know how you look back on that moment, because it does sound pivotal. So, what's your reflection on that moment with? your sister and the time around there? This is all entertainment. And I've maintained that the whole time. I, you know, I agree with aesthetics. I mean, there are other, other things, I mean, that I abbreviated. And it just sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, Amanda, and I'm sorry. It's just like, there's so much. Uh... In 1988, I won the National Art Award before I kind of did any of this. Um, for silversmithing. 
and then I got into music and then I get into hair. So they're all creative things. So I think it's just creating, but I'm happy that my sister said something because a lot of my friends are so fucked right now and they're going to be fucked for a couple of years. And I mean, absolutely no, no safety net for them at all. So I'm glad that like I was able to develop a career that has been successful and I've got the ability to create with fibers hair every day when I go to work and then come home and do this and hang out with someone amazing um, and work with them as well. So life's pretty fucking awesome. So I think it's cool that my sister <laughs> said that. Cause if I didn't, I, you know, unfortunately would probably, I don't know what I'd be doing. That's great, man. So let's talk to this pretty fucking awesome wife and co-owner and events coordinator and creative director at Rev Billy's Shop Shop. Amanda, you were tooling around on Clark and Belmont, that sort of strange quasi-bohemian corner for a while back in the 90s. What's your path to being a co-owner of a salon? Well, I moved to Chicago from Michigan in 2008, and Billy had some friends in the tattoo shop, like he was saying, at the alley and he would come in periodically and I would always kind of see him. And I was also having um, an apprenticeship there for piercing in the piercing studio at the alley. And then one of the tattoo artists got their hair done and I asked where she had gotten her hair done. And she said, Oh yeah, I go and see Rev Billy over at Melio's. And I wanted to get my hair done. So I went with absolutely no idea of what I wanted to do to my hair. I just wanted to do something fun and different and I sat in Billy's chair and I, and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> and uh, he just looked at me like, well, you don't have any fucking idea what you want to do to your hair. <laughs> and I was like, no, I mean, my friend's hair was really cool. Just do something like that. And I don't know if he was just nervous that I was in his chair or actually was annoyed that I had no idea of what to do. <laughs> But it was a really interesting experience because I didn't really know his personality at that point, And I just thought he was kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but my hair looked really great. doesn't matter if he's an asshole, as long as he made your hair look great. So uh-huh. you said you went in to uh, see the good reverend to get a chop uh, because you wanted something fun and different. Now, I should say in full disclosure that as... A, a middle-aged bald man who has not seen the inside of a salon for, you know, 20 plus years. <laughs> I don't know exactly what goes on in salons, but I can tell you that my experiences getting haircuts look nothing like what I saw on the website at Reverend Billy's Chop Shop. Y'all do some super interesting stuff, fun and different to say the very least. And so I guess I want to start diving into what you all do. There is like a virtual cornucopia of different styles. Like it's the coolest shit I have ever seen. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if you could give me a sense for the aesthetic mission and the artistic vision of the shop. What are y'all trying to do there? I think it's just creating an environment and creating something for someone to wear every day that kind of empowers them and makes them feel 
like themselves and confident. And also just to have, like I said, an environment where anyone can feel welcome. That's heartening. It's it's nice to hear that you're seeking to create a really kind of welcoming, inclusive place in an age where we know there's a lot of people trying to put up walls between us. So go chop shop. Billy, what's your vision for the aesthetic and creative sensibilities that you're trying to create there? I think the empowerment thing is really kind of important. I think opportunity. People come in for a change. Kind of my job and like what I really enjoy to get people in and stand in front of them like this, not just stand behind them and have them show me a picture. I want to connect with them and figure out what they want, what they really want. My goal is to do something that's going to make them, like I said earlier, feel better when they leave than they did when they came in, feel much more confident when they leave than they did when they came in by whatever type of art they want me to do on their head. I'm really interested in that. And I want to start maybe from the beginning. Client comes in, gets greeted, I'm sure, in, in, a, in a friendly and welcoming way. And then one of the stylists at the shop, let's say it's you, Rev. Let's say you're meeting them for, for the first time. How do you work with them to try to create a vision for a style that will empower them and make them feel confident? Like, what does that conversation, ideally at least, look like? To begin with, I ask them about themselves because I need to find out what they do. And not just what they do for a living, what they do for fun. How often they go out. When they do go out, what do they do when they go out? Do they just sit at home? Um, What experiences they've had at other salons? Because especially if they're new and it's their first time, there's a reason they've come to see me. And they're not going to the other person because... They were going to somebody else before they got to me. There's got to be a reason they left that other person to come and see me. Right, right. And it's not just because of my fucking charm. (laughs) But yeah, I like to find out what they do and, you know, what they want. I need to figure out boundaries with them. I need to figure out how much fun I can have. Um, Because also, it's about me having fun because I can't, I if this wasn't fun for me, I would not be doing it. Yeah. How much time do you set aside for an appointment? New clients. I think it's an hour now that I spend with a client. Is that right, Amanda? Yeah. I mean, it's really dependent on what the, what the client is coming in for. Okay. Usually new client uh, with Rev Billy, it's, it's about an hour. Because he really loves to have that conversation. And sometimes that conversation can last, you know, 15, 20 minutes before he even starts touching them. So we usually give him at least an hour. Yeah. Now, I imagine this world to be a rather vulnerable one. You know, if people are coming in to feel empowered and confident, it might mean that they don't feel empowered and confident. And so they're looking for you to bolster their esteem, which is totally understandable these days. My gosh, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're all looking for something, 
you know, heck, if I were empowered right now to change my hairstyle, I would definitely do that. <laughs> it's not a gift I have. But they're coming to you. They're looking for something. And it's not just about an aesthetic thing. There's something emotional about it. There's something vulnerable about it. You have a razor. You have a bunch of different types of scissors. It is a very vulnerable environment in which they put themselves. They're seated. You're standing. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of that vulnerability? I mean, trying to persuade people to try and find a comfortable, relaxing place to be in is challenging. Some people just can't deal with it, and I have to respect that. But the people that can, I mean, I don't think that I lose them. And that, I mean, once they're in, I kind of, I keep them because they become friends. And that's kind of like a main, a main goal with all of our clients is to build that relationship and create that friendship and make it a little bit more of a unique experience. Does it feel like that? Are, are your clients, your regular clients, are they kind of like friends or like maybe actually friends? Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. A lot of our very, very close friends that we have today started at the salon. You all have a waiting room in, in the front, perhaps? We do, yes. And Amanda, you're, a lot of your work during store hours, at least, you tend to be around that area, welcoming them and dealing with business and, and the like. Yes. Is part of your gig making sure that that's like a welcoming, fun, friendly, cool space where people can talk to each other or are people just like staring at their phones and uh, what's, what's going on in the front room? I definitely use it as kind of like my opportunity to connect with clients um, because I don't get as much time as, as the stylist would uh, with the client being in their chairs. First impression is everything, you know, when you go into a business. So I really try to make that a, a very inviting, calm environment. And it's just a really fun opportunity for me to have my, you know, a little bit of time with clients that I can chit chat with. Yeah. This might go down on record as like the dumbest question I'm going to ask today, <laughs> but, but here I go. There's an attitude to Reverend Billy's chop shop. It's in the font. It's, it's on the website. Like there's definitely an attitude and I respect that. Don't take it the wrong way. Mm. And there's an attitude to Chicago, but it's also very Midwestern by definition <laughs> and otherwise. Yes. Can you talk to me a little bit about like, in light of the attitude that you want to present and in light of the Midwestern flair of the space and the neighborhood itself, how do you create the type of space that make people willing to be vulnerable and to make it fun and make it feel different? I think a lot of that has to do with like first impression environment. When you walk in, not being bombarded by the reception, you know, asking you a ton of questions, you know, just greeting you. Also our, our music, I feel like plays a really big role into our environment. Uh, we don't play tap 40. <laughs> I would play a lot of 
old rock and roll, new rock and roll, but we'll also play like blues and country. It's all over the place, but it's not your pop music. But it's curated. Y'all are curating an auditory experience when people show up. Sure. And I feel like people really enjoy that. It's not what they're hearing when they go to like Target. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I feel like sometimes can really put people at, at ease, just kind of depending on, on what kind of environment you create right off the bat. I think that plays a big role. Yeah. I bet it does. I bet it does. I want someone to talk about some of the more funky or edgy styles that people come in for. What goes into creating like these super creative artistic experiences that people wear on their heads? One of my questions is, can I have fun with it? It's all scary, I think, for some people. But by the time that I say that, you've gotten to know me. But like, I think the whole thing is honesty. That's the foundation of all of it is being honest with people and having them be honest with you. If they can't, I probably won't even touch their head or I'll touch it once. I guarantee you they won't come in to me anyway or any of my uh, employees and get their hair done because you have to be able to trust the person that is going to do all this stuff because it's a lot. I can positively or negatively affect your life for a long time, depending on what I do. So you better fucking trust me. And I better trust that you're being honest with me or I won't do it. Dude, I don't want to sell you short and I don't want to sell me short. If we're not going to vibe, if we're not going to mesh, then I'm out. And you should be too. Life's too fucking short. Hmm. If we're not going to vibe well together, why would you want to give me your money? And why would I want to give you my creativity? So that's how we begin to create something. And then reference, I ask them what they like, what they don't like. People can tell me what they hate more than they can really tell me what they like. <laughs> right. So I like to find out what they don't like so that I can not do that to them. <laughs> I don't want to give them something they don't like. So I want to find out what that is then the likes are kind of interesting. And then when people get into the more audacious things, like you were saying, they want to show me pictures. And this might sound smug. Um, I'm an artist and I'm starting to accept that like in the middle of my lifetime. If I'm going to do that art, I have to figure out what boundaries you have. And I need to know what reference I'm working with to create something because I'm painting, literally painting on people's hair. Like some of the ones that you've seen, I've done cat's eye nebulas, star patterns. I'm shaving graphics into people's hair with a straight razor, which is a huge amount of trust. I can fuck you up really bad (laughs) if I'm not steady and if I'm not really concentrating, if I'm not all into it. And I think that like, the attitude is trust and like just getting people to know by talking to them that you can trust that we're all of us are going to do what we need to do to make them happy. And then I like to get reference to what's in their mind's eye before I get visual reference to what they would like for their hair to look like. 
I like for people to show me references to nature. Hmm. Some of my clients bring in like Pantone swatches to show me a Pantone swatch. And my challenge is to match that up using my brain and using pigments to make that color happen. To go along with what Billy's saying with trust, some of our stylist's best creations have come out of our, the client being like, I trust you, have fun. So just do whatever you want because I know in the end it's going to be awesome building that relationship to get to that point with clients is what it's all about. Can I ask if there was a moment where you came to appreciate that you are indeed an artist, that you are still an artist, that this is just another medium and that you really saw yourself as such in the salon? Yeah, I think only recently because I think creativity is the only thing I really have to offer. And it's not just in hair. It's also in the music. Like if I don't do stuff, I will go crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, is it a different experience having sort of like a straight laced run of the mill neighborhood person? I don't know. It's called like a business person who comes in. They're not looking for anything particular funky or edgy, but you're, you're their neighborhood barbershop. They like you all. And, you know, they come in every month to get their like regular standard cut. And then there are people who are also regulars, but they're coming in for, you know, a one, two, three hour session to get something super funky done. How different is that in terms of creating a customer experience? Absolutely super cool still. I mean, because they've become friends. It's an intimate service. I'm touching your head. I'm like within three to six inches of you, touching you a lot, touching someone's head. Even people that you're around a lot of the time, you don't really want them to touch your head. So Mm -mm. when it's a regular coming in and I'm touching their head, I, you know, they're, they're just going to tell me about their life, about what's going on. And then it becomes, Kind of the most amazing thing, because then we are what salons and barbershops have always been, which is a way to exchange information with people in that community to make things move forward and grow, which is to find out what's going on down the street from me, to find out, well, you know that Wanda was down and she got busted at the park because of, but it's really great. You get to hear stuff that most people would consider flotsam and jetsam. And it's not, it's like amazing little nuggets of information that like keeps you more connected. Do you ever get the sense that what you all do in that shop is for some people, like some of the most real and earnest engagement that they get? You know, like instead of looking at their phones, because it's really hard to look at your phone when you're getting a cut. Like they're, that's their, you know, half hour, an hour of just actually like being human. Absolutely. 100%. There's so many times that clients will, will come up to cash out for their service and just be like, I really needed that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> a stylist is way more than a stylist and can sometimes be a therapist at the same time or just someone to confide in or it's much more of an experience than just a haircut. 
Now, about what proportion of your clients are sort of seemingly, or at least aesthetically, straight-laced neighborhood folks looking for a good cut versus what percent of the people coming in are looking for something edgy, funky, life-changing? It's pretty half and half. And a lot of the really, like, you know, quote-unquote straight-laced haircuts turn out to be some of the funkiest people. Yeah. You know? Right, right. That's why I threw the word seemingly in there. Like, you know, people (laughs) might be looking for the standard Michael Douglas do, but they're going to, you know, go home and put on some leather and let it it rip. (laughs) I'm just I'm just saying I'll I'll bet I'll bet you have heard some stories in the chair in that neighborhood, you know, people confiding in you as the therapist with the scissors. I'm I'm sure you've heard some shit. I I'm also pretty sure y'all have made a lot of people feel better, especially in these days. People need that kind of catharsis and they need this kind of connection. And I hope it feels good even on the most difficult days and in the most difficult times. I hope that if nothing else, you could rest at night because you gave people a chance to connect when they, when they needed it most. Right. Yeah. I wanted to get into some nuts and bolts that I probably should have gotten into before. How many chairs do we have at the shop? How many stylists are working at any given time? Offer me a vision of what's going on there on a daily basis. Well, we have four stylists. Um, we have eight chairs altogether that could be filled. Two front desk uh, receptionists, including myself. On a normal non-pandemic day, everyone could be in there, you know, with clients, with, you know, potentially double clients, people in the waiting room, you know, people in the back. But right now, because of the pandemic, our capacity restrictions are very strict and we stick to those. So right now, usually at the most, we have three stylists in there. We try to keep it to two just to keep it low and keep it as safe as we can. Yeah. What proportion of your stylists are female or identify as female? All of them except Billy. (laughs) So, and what proportion of your clients approximately identify as female or male or non-binary? When it comes to gender and our services, we don't have any gender-specific services. Uh, We don't have like the traditional male haircut, female haircut. Right. It's all dependent on length and the amount of time it takes for your service. And I feel like that goes along with just having a very welcoming environment for everyone. But it's it's pretty 50-50, I would say. Is it different, Rev, for you at all, cutting male hair versus female hair, having, having, a, having a dude in the chair versus having a woman in the chair? Does it change your work at all? No. Gender has nothing to do with it. Good. It's like, if you can't trust me and I can't trust you, mm-hmm. let's save each other some time because it is precious. So, And if you do trust me, like, let's... Rock on. Everything about us and our services has nothing to do with gender at all. It's all about just the experience and vibes that you get from people. And whether that's good or bad, we we go from there. It's uh, heartening to hear. I will tell you that it dawns on me when I hear you all respond to the question that my question actually comes from like 
my experiences growing up, going to Mike's Barbershop, and there was Mike and Gene and Vince. It was all guys, and in the back room, there were dirty magazines, and I was nine, and I didn't quite get it, but I think I pretty much liked it. And there were there were cigarettes and cigars, and, you know, and then I know that my mom would bring me to her salon because, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of childcare. And I remember it being very gendered. And I know that a lot of salons are. And so I guess I wonder if you all feel like you're bucking the system or in any substantial way going against the grain by really offering uh, an experience that transcends some of these uh, unfortunate gender confines. Is that part of the mission? It's kind of going against a traditional system, but I feel like more and more it's changing and stylists are beginning to to realize more and more that it's not about the gender. It's about, it's about the haircut. But I think it's definitely a, something within the salon world that has been slowly changing. And I think that's great. Yeah, dude, enough with that shit. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're bucking the system. I do think that, like, for whatever reason, we've got some sort of punk rock ideal thing. That all goes back to being honest, which I think that ideal has absolute foundation in. Like, any of the old school, like, Ian Mackay, Fugazi, like, any of the people that kind of started going, like, yeah, we're not really going to tell you you can come to a show or can't come to a show and we don't want to charge you a million bucks to come and see our show it's kind of like us i feel like we want you to be able to come to where we are and we want to make you feel awesome so if you will allow us to do that we'll welcome you with open arms time and time again i mean yeah and it doesn't matter who you are I love everything about that. Thank you both. In Berlin, it's still very, very gendered. And I think my question is also sort of informed by that sort of way in which Berlin is kind of behind the times. I think in many ways, Berlin's very progressive when it comes to defying typical gender stereotypes. However, the salon might be one of the most segregated places left here. So... Good riddance to that. I think, you know, and who knows, maybe the pandemic's going to change that. You know, unfortunately, a lot of salons here are having real hard times. Some of them won't make it, but maybe the ones that remain will be the ones that really offer a more safe space to more different types of people. And they're not, they're not just trying to like, like it'll say fucking like men's salon, women's salon, like most of them, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, they're... Yeah. Yeah, there are places like that here as well. And I, absolutely, there's a place for that, I, I guess. Yeah. So the, I think it's necessary to have us as well as to have those other places, which are very specific. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And that's very kind of you. It's generous of you to like perhaps more generous than I was willing to be. You're like, yeah, maybe there's there's space for like the men's barbershop. Yeah. I guess I kind of feel a certain allergy to that in the 21st century. And a lot of the work that I do when I'm not running my dumb face in front of this microphone is trying to create spaces where people can do what they can to sort of buck that 
you know, bifurcated gender experience where like this is male and this is female. This is a men's barbershop, but this is a female's barbershop, in part because there are way too many people who who don't identify with either gender particularly well. And I want more safe spaces for them, you know, and I know like I don't want to get in like the like I sometimes saying safe space implies something. I don't want and I'm not trying to virtue signal, but like, dude, I teach high school kids and uh-huh. more and more of my students just are openly defying gender labels. And I think it's, it's like the best thing that's happened in my my last five or 10 years as, as a teacher, I've been doing it for 20 plus years and it's just so heartening. And then like, you know, you're walking and talking with these kids on the way from school to the train station. And there's literally on the way, there's like the men's barbershop on one side and the woman's on the other. And you're like, and you're talking to these kids and like, Oh, well that's all fucking wrong now, isn't it? You know, I go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's cool too. I think there's going to be a backlash to all of this. Yeah. In some capacity. And I think that people are going to feel excluded and not welcome because all of the gender neutral stuff, as important as I think it is too, are making other people feel alienated. And that sounds really weird, but that's reality. And I hear it yeah. from people all the time. Oh, yeah. There's a pushback yeah. mm-hmm. for all of these things. And there will be. Yeah. And there is. Mm-hmm. It's already going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely like a two steps forward, mm-hmm. one step back thing. And in tumultuous times, it could be two steps forward, three steps back. Uh, I just hope that the path of progress, in as much as it can be, bumpy i hope we're still on that path yeah and and the path being towards more openness and more inclusion and less lines drawn between us yeah yeah, yeah absolutely um, so we'll we'll all we'll all do our part hey rev you know i do have a question for you mm-hmm. so there's no doubt in my mind and i'm heartened to learn that there's no doubt in your mind that you are indeed an artist if a painter let's say makes a mistake on canvas, they can paint over it. They can, you know, start a new canvas. The canvas doesn't mind, right? The canvas is very forgiving. Uh, If you make a serious error of vision or an error that's more mechanical, it can be harder to correct that. You can't throw out the canvas. While surely you're focused and intent, you surely must have made a mistake or two in your time. How do you grapple with that? How do you handle mistakes? Even if a mistake is defined by like, you didn't achieve the the vision that you had. Embracing the mistake. That's what you have to do. I'm, I will tell people whose hair I'm doing that I, I, eh, it's not really how I envisioned it, but it, it's good. Do you like it? And I'm trying to move away from that because I need to be more secure. I just feel like I could always do things better, and I'm trying to get better at doing that with the music thing paralleling with the hair thing, 
I'm making all these videos that I'm putting up that are showing the process of creation that isn't a pretty fancy recorded thing. It's just showing me sitting down and doing something and showing me fucking up because everyone does. The problem is the people who are all polished and fancy who you listen to all the time don't let you see their mistakes and don't want to admit that they make them. And I'm trying to do that in everything right now, even with imperfections are what makes beautiful art. And also the evidence of a struggle is what makes things spectacular. And if you can't get some feeling of that struggle, I mean, that's what makes good art. Mm -hmm. I'm totally down with the cult of wabi-sabi. I'm deeply interested in, I, I literally meditate on the art of imperfection. And I wonder if when it doesn't go quite the way you envisioned it, if you can like just see it as nevertheless this perfectly imperfect experience that you had with somebody else in this vulnerable moment where they're in the chair, you're doing your best work, they're doing their best work, and it might not have come out exactly the way either of you or one of you had envisioned it, but it is still nevertheless like a special experience, an intimate, vulnerable, and very real experience. And what it is, it is. Is that kind of what you're talking about in terms of your effort to relish imperfections? Absolutely. And I need a lot of help with that. And Amanda, I think she sees it more than I see it. I kind of have to be talked down a lot Mm -hmm. because I'm not absolutely accepting of it. I don't see it all the time. And I, I need to be kind of sat down and and I'm sorry, Amanda, but like mm-hmm. you most of the time to sit down and go like, dude, that looked good. That looked really good. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like the artist is always going to be their worst critic or, you know, judge or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. outside of the stylist, I, I mean, it's usually always incredible work, but as the artist, you're always going to nitpick your work and, and find those small little imperfections and, and have those little things needle at you. But seeing Billy in those situations, to me, it just shows, and I feel like to the client as well, it just shows that the stylist really cares about their work and wants it to be perfect. But sometimes, I mean, it, it really depends with, depends on the canvas that you're working with. There are some things that you just can't do with someone's hair because it just won't let you. Yeah. Before we were recording, Amanda, you and I were talking and you had told me that you were from Michigan. And I told you I had biked up to Traverse City, Michigan from Chicago once. Mm-hmm. And on that very trip, I was visiting a friend in Traverse City and we went to go see a Buddhist sand sculpture. And these monks had come to Traverse City and they had spent an entire week building this gorgeous multicolored sand sculpture. It's the most astounding and ornate thing. Like the level literally of granular detail that went into this was, it was overwhelming. Uh, People were were getting emotional. It was a very special vibe in Mm -hmm. the room. And then of course, they take it and they just dump it onto the floor and all of the colors just sort of wash into each other. And that has been 
a metaphor for me for a long time, just sort of the ephemeral nature of it all and letting things sort of wash over us. I think that's why the ocean is such a powerful metaphor and a powerful feeling, right? Just to be in the ocean and to realize that we try to keep our footing, but the world is a powerful thing and all we can do is just to enjoy that experience of just being there now. And I hope that, you know, Billy, you kind of touched a nerve with me because like you, I struggle to find the perfection in imperfections, the beauty, the true capital B beauty in imperfections. I have control issues. They manifest in a thousand different ways. And it's nice to know that across the pond, there's some dude I've never met before who is just struggling with the same thing I'm struggling with. Our jobs aren't particularly similar. We both deal with very acute vulnerability. We're both trying to do our best. And we both have to grapple with the challenges of imperfection. So, um, solidarity, man. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. I'll try to sleep better at night with it. I know that your clients, they expect a lot out of you. And I know you deliver. You do the best you can. And it sounds like, if nothing else, the process, the experience, the vulnerability. And if I may say so, the fun that you both seem to bring to the shop, it just kind of seems like a fun place to be Maybe not above all else, but maybe above all else. It just kind of seems like a fun vibe you all have created. I hope it feels that way. I think so. And I always hope so. Because, I mean, what's the point if you're not having fun? It's something that we try to create every day. Well, I trust that you do. (laughs) And then just a a parallel with finding imperfections and, and being hard on yourself with your work. Um, it's funny cause I find a parallel with our gallery space as well. Cause like nine times out of 10, the pieces that sell are the pieces that the artist hates the most. And it's always the first ones to go. It's funny how that, that is and how that happens a lot. Yeah. The limits of human perception, especially things having to do with ego. Absolutely. And especially with things having to do with what I'm going to loosely call art. Mm. our capacity to see truth through ego and about art is really fucking small. (laughs) I try, you know, I try to play music. I write a little bit of music. I'm pretty convinced it's all garbage. And thus I have real performance anxiety. I don't like performing music in front of people at all. But on the rare occasions I do, it seems to bring something to people, which is all the whole thing's supposed to be about anyway. But that's not going to help me, you know, knowing that's not enough. Because it's the ego thing. It's the performance thing. It's a perfection thing. But yeah, I could see these art, the, the, the people who show in the gallery at, at the chop shop. They, man, that whole thing is so fraught. You know, do you think it has something to do with the fact that whether it's the artists that you're showing at the chop shop or 
good reverend, the artistry that you bring that like, it's just, it requires a sensitivity to do it well. And sensitive people are always going to struggle mightily in trying times like these. And so we just have to eat shit all the time. Maybe that wasn't a question. <laughs> yeah, you do have to. Yeah, you know, you absolutely do have to eat shit all the time. And you have to start to like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> unless you, you try to figure out a way to see the shit sandwich as something other than a shit sandwich, you're never going to get out of anywhere or be able to do anything. But I challenge you to figure out a way to do something creative on your own terms, like figure out a way to do it more and to accept that, like maybe allowing people to witness those imperfections will empower you to grow somehow. That's what I'm working on, man. That's what I'm working on. And this podcast is part of that, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to become a little more comfortable just being naked in front of everyone. And I've chosen a particular time in my life to do that and a particular time in the world to do that. And this podcast is part of that effort this is something I had wanted to do for a long time, but it was my own fear and ego that prevented me from doing it. And, you know, I put a song or two out there in the world and it was equal parts cathartic and daunting. And uh, so challenge accepted. I'm working on it, man. Yeah, I think the podcast is amazing. I, I would not be able to do anything like this. Well, I can only do it with splendid guests like the two of you, but I can't let the two of you go without asking you to help me drive this train into the station. And here at the Studs Podcast, here's how we do it. We love stories. So I'm hoping that either one or both of you would be so kind as to tell me the story of a triumph and a failure in your work. Maybe we could start with the failure so that we could end on a note of triumph. Would someone be so kind? <laughs> it's hard to look at things as failures, I think. I try to look at things as more of, you know, just life experiences and learning experiences and, and tools and stepping stones to help you get to a stronger place. I'm with you. I don't know where to... To go with that, what do you think, Billy? I, I feel like I fail to see failure. Yeah. Anything that hasn't been successful isn't necessarily a failure. It just didn't go into the stratosphere. I'm not perfect. There are things I don't succeed at, and there are things that I absolutely do not do well. It's just trying to figure out how to learn from those things and move forward mm -hmm. with the things that I'm better at succeeding. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if, if anything, I mean, with our first salon, when we took over big hair, I mean, that definitely didn't go anywhere. I guess that you could call that a failure, but both of us as much of a struggle and how stressful that time was. I mean, it, if we wouldn't have had that, we wouldn't be where we are today. 
we absolutely would not be because of how much we learned from that experience. It, it helped us with the business that we have now. Yeah, that's fair. I will tell you that you're not the first guest that prefers not to see the world in terms of triumphs and failures. In fact, I have a close friend who happens to be a listener to the podcast and he he struggles with you know whether this is an even a, a, an appropriate question because he doesn't know whether he wants to see his life in terms of wins and losses. Right. But I think what's interesting about it might be giving wise people like yourselves the opportunity to take the question where they want to. And I like where you took it. So with that said, it seems to me that y'all have created something really special. So would you talk to me about a story of triumph, a professional success? I Can I go? Yeah. I think our salon is like the biggest thing that we both have. I don't know that we thought it was going to be as successful as it is. And the fact that like I can do anything still creative is also a huge success. Yeah. And encouraging other people to be creative, I think, is a success. Even people that may not see that you're encouraging that. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the first thing that popped in my head was our grand opening party of, of Red Billy's Chop Shop and just being able to open the, the doors because the experience that we had with our previous salon was quite devastating at points. And there were times where Billy and I were like, should we even do this? Like, is it even worth it to go off on our own and open our own space? So I'm really glad that we did. I'll definitely look at that as always being a success. And then also just being able to watch our team every day have successful situations with their clients and and their friends that come in to be able to have a, a space where they can do that, I think is a, a huge success as well. It sounds like it. And I hope that in these trying times, and they are indeed trying, that you all can savor the sweet taste of the success that you have with your shop. It seems like a pretty cool space. Indeed, I'll go so far as to say, it seems like a really special environment where people are allowed to and encouraged to feel vulnerable. And that is empowering. It must be empowering. And I hope that you take some solace in that. One thing that I've been forced to learn in doing these podcasts is that people who really make efforts to and succeed in their efforts to create special spaces for other people oftentimes don't appreciate, they don't remember to appreciate how special those spaces are because they're, frankly, they're just busy working, right? They're just trying to get the hair off the fucking floor. They're trying to get the bills paid. They're trying to like put on a smiling face when someone walks in the door and to make a new client feel comfortable. They're just, oftentimes people are so busy just working that they forget to appreciate how how sacred their work is. And it sounds to me like what y'all have created there. There's something, if not sacred, at the very least special 
congratulations on it. Thank you. I know it's tough times, but sounds like you all got something super cool going on. So enjoy it. And thank you for being on the podcast. I'm really grateful for your energy and your enthusiasm and just your ideas and your reflections on your work. Thanks for being on Studs, yeah? Thank you. Thank you for having us. This has been great. I hope it wasn't painful. Oh, I hope it was maybe no. even a little enjoyable in parts. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Billy and I have done multiple interviews and I would say this one has probably been the best. Yeah. It's really cool. Hey, yeah. Victory Lazar. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. That's the good reverend and his better half, Amanda. You know, you never know what you're signing up for when you interview two people. I always have the fear that Either one person is going to consciously or unconsciously seek to steal the show, or to the contrary, that both people are going to create so much space for the other person out of the fear that they might seem like they're stealing the show. But these two, uh, you could tell why they're in love. You could tell why they've had such a successful partnership in and outside of the salon. It was actually kind of beautiful to watch and to listen to them mutually engage in the discussion. I like those two. I hope to meet them one day. It's not going to be for a haircut. I don't get those. But I like to get to that neighborhood sometimes. You got the Taqueria Al Asadero. You got the Bad Apple Cocktail Bar. And we can't forget Half Acre Brewery. I could go for a daisy cutter right now. I would do a lot for a daisy cutter right now. And there might be people I would murder with my bare hands for a cold can of Four Acre Vallejo. Oh, good. I just put that on record. What could go wrong? All right, enough. Subscribe and leave a review. And if you like what you hear, do me a favor. Tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, and you got the means to give a few, head on over to patreon.com slash studs. Is it springtime yet? Does it feel like springtime there? Do you feel like you're springing forward? You got a little pep in your step? I hope you do. And I hope to be with you next week. Take care, y'all.